This is Daniel Fagella, Head of Research at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research, and you're listening to our AI Futures series here on the AI and Business Podcast. This is episode five of our special Saturday series. This entire series is focused on the future of the human experience. How will day-to-day life be transformed when AI is not just everywhere, but it's astronomically more powerful, looking even 10 or 20 years into the future? Our guest this week happens to be a friend of mine. John C. Havens is the Director for Emerging Technologies and Strategic Development at the IEEE Standards Association, an Executive Director for the Council on Extended Intelligence, and the IEEE Global Initiative of Ethics and Autonomous Intelligent Systems. He's written for a great number of publications and has two published books. Uh, one is called Artificial Intelligence, yes, you heard that right, and the other is called Hacking Happiness. Since before his work at the IEEE, John has been focused on the importance of personal data and what it means in our digital future. And today, I get to ask John about the implications of some of those data concerns as we move forward into the future, as we think about some of the virtual ecosystems that we'll be living and working in in the decades ahead. In this episode, John explores issues around privacy and security, and also talks about the kind of momentum track that we're on right now when it comes to our technology and our personal data and what that might mean for the kind of virtual worlds that we end up living in. I've had many conversations with John over the years, and we agree on very few things. But fortunately, that is not the grounding of good friendships, in my opinion. Fortunately, we have a tremendous amount of mutual respect and high bandwidth communication of important ideas. John is a remarkably respectful person and is certainly someone whose ideas matter. And today I'm fortunate to be able to extend some of his ideas, some of his rich experience uh, from his professional world and his work at the IEEE and ask him about the implications of data and AI as we think about our own privacy and security moving forward. So glad to be able to have John as episode five in our series. This is one more window into what the AI future might look like and how day-to-day life might be transformed. So without further ado, this is John C. Havens of the IEEE here on the AI and Business Podcast. So, John, we're talking about the future of the virtual human experience. You and I have talked at kind of a tertiary level over some dinners and, and at different events about this topic on the edges, and now is our chance to really sink our teeth into it. The first thing I want to ask is about, clearly this has been important for you because you've, you've mentioned it on a number of occasions. What are the signals for you that we are getting pulled more and more into the virtual space? What are the things that you see that are trends that really are indicative that, hey, you know, this is, this is something that's kind of like, yanking more and more of the human experience into this virtual world. Sure. Well, first off, Dan, I have to say such an honor to be on your show, man. And you are such a good friend. And I love sometimes we'll disagree on things, but I just have such a respect for you and the work you're doing at Emerge. So really honored to be here. Secondly, I'm currently on staff at IEEE, which I'm honored and love to be on there. I, I love my job. But anything we're talking about today will be John talking for John's sake. A lot of times people are like, hey, John formally represents the entire half million people. And the answer is, no, I do not. I'm one guy. Honored to be there. A dude who's, yeah, you've written books. You've got plenty of your own thoughts. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and I can also tell you where the work reflects things that we're doing. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. So in terms of augmented and virtual reality, I've been writing about the, this area since 2011. And I wrote a piece for Mashable where I talked about virtual air rights. And uh, air rights uh, began, I believe, in Japan, if memory serves, from that research, where there were already a lot of uh, buildings, uh, now like in Times Square in the States, 
that above the buildings there were billboards, essentially. But someone had the idea to sell that space, the logic being when someone looks up above those buildings, the people usually that own the buildings would have the rights to that actual physical space, even though it was just air, technically. So what I realized at that point or felt was that with augmented reality, which I'm sure all your listeners know about, but you know, digital data overlaid, quote, actual reality, that of course, one of the first things that would happen is ads. And and by the way, minority report, people are probably used to this concept. But really what that meant, meant to me in a larger sense in terms of now how we're getting sucked in is there's really no applications I can think of where augmented reality or virtual reality won't replicate aspects of our current existence. And then also will change things in ways that we normally can't experience in our existence. So one example of a trend that will get more uh, intense is time shifting. People are used to the concept of time shifting, like, hey, I want to watch a TV show this time versus then. And it used to be you had to put in here. I'm showing my age. Enjoy a VHS (laughs) to record. Right. Then it turned into, you know, TiVo and then it turned into whatever. And now it's live streaming. Right. So you can see things whenever you want. My son, actually, who is now 17, we were uh, I was so proud of him for this because he's a geek like me. But we were out talking about augmented reality and video storage being cheaper. And I was saying, well, soon we'll have, whether it's glasses or augmented reality contact lenses, we'll be able to film all of our conversations. And outside of all the surveillance and privacy issues, which we'll probably talk about too, we could just record our days so that we can access them. And things like arguments, like you said this, well, hold on a second. No, you actually said that, right? Or things like uh, a good experience, like me having breakfast with my son. I was like, instead of just having to pull out my camera and kind of ruin the moment, I can record it. And he was the one who's like, well, wait a second. If we're recording each other, that's sort of like two takes or two camera shot, like in a TV show. I was like, yeah. And he's like, and people around us, they're also shooting or they will, they will be filming their lives. And those are additional kind of life streams where then like if one of our feeds doesn't work, maybe we could ask permission to access theirs. And that could be like a whole new economy. And I was like, keep going, because I was already <laughs> really impressed. And I was like stoked that my Yeah, let's voice have didn't. let's have your son on here in the next episode. He's, no, dude, he's, <laughs> he's a gamer like you I would love it. Yeah. Uh, and then just to close this one thing, just yeah. to sort of give a sense of the uh, and I'm happy to go into more on this because I know it's the first of three questions. But the point being, if we start to think about what it means, say you'd film a week of your life. But then especially when you convert augmented and virtual reality and combining all those different streams, just from a sense of how you could experience your life and re-experience it, if it's a real virtual reality that feels immersive and actually asks real as reality, time shifting means you actually sort of have life shifting, right? You can go back and, and, and this is where there's ethical issues and there's positive and negative. Positive would be things like a marriage counselor could work with a couple and say, well, let's go back. If you both give me permission, let's look at the streams of your argument. And do you realize, did you see each other's face here? Did you put on virtual reality goggles and walk in the shoes of your partner, right? Experience that argument coming from your partner's perspective, right? And see now 
have the same discussion again, right? So it's I can go into more examples that for me kind of blow my mind, but that the point is is that there's nothing really to not discuss because these are completely new versions of the reality that we're in. They're just immersive. Yeah. So this is coming from simply recording video, maybe from a pair of smart glasses or contact lens or whatever the case may be, and being able to pipe that somewhere. Of course, there's also the idea of of layering things on top of that. This would be where maybe computer vision and, and, and AR would sort of mix and match here where, I mean, I can think of random examples. I'd love to hear yours, but I mean, the things that kind of rock my world around AR, which I know you've been writing about for a long time are, you know, wouldn't we imagine that there would be some things I would just want to be notified of ubiquitously? Like I don't have kids and not, a, not, not, not on the roadmap for your boy here. Let's, let's just say, let's just say I did, you know, if they like broke their arm, right? Like, like there's some set of people, there's a, there's a cohort of people whom if enter hospital notify Dan, right? There, there's a cohort. There's also probably some things about my business I would want to know about as soon as they happen. Also, if I need to find something in my house, I'd like it to be visually identified for me rather than bumbling about trying to find where my keys are, whatever the case may be, right? I'm being able to layer value on top of my own life, whether, whether simple notification doesn't involve AI, but being able to kind of overlay to-do instructions on top of something I'm working on, whether it be on my computer or in physical space, that could all be AR, that could all be piped in from some instruction library somewhere layered on top of whatever I have my hands on. Just, I want reality and I want the important things to be done faster. I want them to be more self-evident and I want these particular results, boom, that could be put in front of me. How do you think about that? What are the transformative ways that beyond recording, we can start to layer and kind of get pulled into this mix and match of virtual? Well, it's a great question. In my book, Artificial Intelligence, Embracing Our Humanity to Maximize Machines, I have a concept called values by design. Uh, a lot of it, I give credit to, oh, I hope I can th think of his name. Uh, there's a paper called Moral Proxy. His name will come to me, a fantastic guy based out of, he wasn't McGill. All right, his name will come to me. So this is, what I'm explaining now is not my idea, and I'll get this to you for your show notes. But moral proxy, there's already a precedent in the physical world. If, say, someone is a, um, uh, I think it's Jehovah's Witness, it may be uh, Scientology and blanking, but the logic being if someone says, I don't want blood transfused if I go to the emergency Jehovah's room. Jehovah's Witness, yeah, yeah. Jehovah's, all right. So that's, you know, a sticker, I guess, I believe, on your license in the United States because logically you're maybe unconscious, right? So the, the point is I am telling you based on a faith or a belief what to do, doctor, in this case, so that you don't have to follow your credo or your professional whatever. And, and more importantly, I am exerting my right to yeah. say that my values take precedent here. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, Jason Millar. There it is. Thank God. Bada bing. Okay. Jason okay. Millar. Fantastic. Great. So I think it's moral proxy. So really, this is, I'm building off of his idea. And frankly, maybe just it's the same thing. But what you kind of explain, how I explain it is, Data sovereignty, right, is this idea that if there's a trusted identity structure, so let's just say a passport or a license, and again, I'm speaking mainly in the U.S., but passport is a good analogy. Uh, and this is outside of all the immigration issues and whatever yeah, else. But yeah. the point being, if, if Daniel holds up a document that in the States is blue, the blue passport, and I look at it, and, and assuming it's not forged, then I know you're Dan, right? You're Dan, the guy that's the mastermind brain behind Emerge, who's brilliant and all that, right? And then you say, here are my algorithmic level terms and conditions for my life, 
right? Which is going to have a number of different factors. And I'm, I'm building off of what you said, because this is what I was proposing that we need, this idea of values by design, which is, first of all, there's just some kind of apples to apples, uh, let's call them in the world of privacy, GDPR, right? I don't want this PII data shared in this way. And then there's things that are preferences which may not always be able to be honored depending on the context. So in the book, I write about like Starbucks, right? In augmented reality, there's a lot of precedence with the Kodak camera when it first came out, like in the 50s or 60s, the original camera. Apparently people kind of freaked out in the park when people pulled out these, you know, old school. Wow, yeah. People are like, don't take my picture, right? But where we are now, is how do you even know, right? Someone's holding up their phone and it's ubiquitous that people are checking their email, but they could be taking your picture. So the logic is through a combination of technologies like geofencing, internet of things, Bluetooth, yada, yada. It's very simple in one sense. It's not simple, but the point being it's, it's doable that you could say as Dan, walk towards a Starbucks and based on your preferences, and here I'm just using you hypothetically, right? There'd be a list of things that are just, let's call them technical about your privacy. I don't want my face scanned. I don't want this data, physiological data scanned. I don't want this. I don't want this. Now, these are what Dan prefers, right? They are your terms and conditions. The logic that I propose in the book, again, kind of building off of Jason's overarching methodology or philosophy here, is that you could, when you got 10, say 10 feet of within that one Starbucks near where you live, right? You get a text, Dan, here are the things, or if it's augmented, it just comes up in your screen, right? Your contact lenses, right? This Starbucks will honor these three things, but not the fourth. You know, you could research and why is that? You could contest it, but then you get to make the decision. It's essentially just really overt disclosure about whether or not you get to go in. Now, the thing here that I understand there's a lot of layers here, except to say, First and foremost, this is stuff you probably could find out in some kind of terms and conditions statements, right? If you went through all of Starbucks, like right now. But a couple of things which are different. One is there's a lot of organizations in, let's call it the data sovereignty space that actually do that. They will work through long terms and conditions to sort of put them in, just bucket them in like five buckets and say, here's things to consider, right? Whether or not you agree with them. The second thing is, especially with augmented, the idea that people have done a lot like with art and protest is let's say you're outside that Starbucks and you're like, what the heck? I just want to get a latte. And you said you need to scan my face. I think that's crap, right? I'm not saying you would, but maybe you do. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you, you could post outside the Starbucks a marker in the augmented reality space. It might be easy to wipe or all that. But the point is, is you could hang up a marker with a big you know fist or something saying, I want a latte, don't scan my face. And it they might take it down. But the point is, is there's a form of parity that becomes allowable that a brand, and I'm only using Starbucks as an example here. I, I don't know what Starbucks feels about any of this. But the point being is a brand could say, you know what? We want Dan here. He doesn't want to have his face scanned. So let's let him use some kind of face scrambler technology if he has one that he prefers and give him, you know, say like, we're going to charge you 25 cents extra. And here's the logic. Now that might irritate you. Yeah. You might be like, well, that sucks. But then you might go, well, thank you, because you're getting charged for the preference. And then here, I'll just, I'll add another layer and then hear your thoughts, which yeah, is yeah. 
I think the positive thing here, I want to start from the positive, is brands, uh, and I don't want to talk just about brands. There's a lot of repercussions. But if you and I are both getting an Uber sent to us, I always give this example. We have different music preferences. We have different preferences about, say, effective computing, uh, dealing with our emotions by looking at our face. So our values by design kind of just simple thing that we project to the digital and immersive realm would be very different. And again, just because we project it doesn't mean they'd be honored. But in the case of the Uber that came to pick you up, it would have whatever, you know, hard rock, kick-ass Dan tunes that you like (laughs) and like karate videos. And mine would be the blues and whatever. And then they could charge for an overage because it's really customizable, which I wouldn't mind paying. But all of those examples, again, I can give you a thousand more. The thing that is vastly different from what is here now is in the digital realm alone. I do not have a way universally to project my terms and conditions back to the world. And that's a lot of the work I've been doing with IEEE to try to change that. Yeah, yeah. We, we've covered, those of you who are listening in, if you type ethically aligned design into the search of emerge.com, you'll see some of the multiple articles of past coverage about some of IEEE's work that, that we we like and, and think deserves some discourse in the business realm and uh, deserves to be covered. Just to, to flesh this out, so we are going to get into governance and power dynamics around this, and, and I think we're, we're almost kind of leaning there right now, but I, I appreciate the picture being painted. I want to sort of ask, you know, in alignment with this first question, and then we'll, or we'll, we'll get into kind of the second one here, is where is this taking us? So we've got, you know, people spending more time on their phones, people are doing more of their work. Obviously, with coronavirus, everybody's on their laptop doing their work. Different sorts of, you know, maybe VR is going to become more and more a part of the workplace. Certain kinds of designers might need it than maybe certain kind of, you know, engineer, who knows. And so we're kind of getting shuffled and pulled into virtual spaces. If we just kind of turn off any ability to, to design what what future we're headed to, long ball and into the future, where do you see this taking us? Maybe even a little bit farther than, you know, most people like to think, right? Oh, maybe Google will control my VR environment. Ah, that to me, that's not. I'm not really all that shocked. That's not really mind blowing. But for you, when you think about transformatively different ways that we're gonna kind of gonna be and live, what do you think that could be like? What are the things that for you are kind of rattling in terms of how much might shift in the mid and long term? Yeah, it's a great question. And again, I'll I'll just say as a reminder, this is John speaking <laughs> on hyperbole, and I I just say that a lot because we do. I should say this: ethically aligned design recently added a new chapter on extended reality. I'm really proud of that chapter. Monique Moreau's the chair. Uh, I was a member. A lot of great, and that paper reflects a lot of the ethical issues of extended reality. And that's actually from IEEE. But I think one thing recently I've been really excited about, uh, although it's really challenging. And this is now getting to your question about existing reality and how those realities will certainly just be amplified. There's a wonderful paper I read over the weekend by a woman named Paola uh, Ricuarte. I think it's R-I-C-U-A-R-T-E. She's at Harvard Berkman Klein, but she's based in Mexico City. I will not do justice to her paper, but she talks about the decolonization of data. I think one thing that for me, as John, as a person living in New Jersey, who's been a geek, I'm very you know fortunate to be at the job I'm at. I have great friends like you, Dan, who are really smart people, but as a rule, most of my friends have access to all these different technologies. And if not only access, let's call it advanced access, meaning deep levels of understanding all these different things. And then secondly is I'm now, again, just speaking for myself. I don't know what I don't know. 
about things like even what the word decolonization means in uh, as Paula explains it in her paper. And I've met Paula, I'm, I was honored to meet her. So for instance, again, please read her paper. I'll send you the link. So anyone listening, go to the master and that's her. But the thing is she talks about in Mexico City, for instance, how I believe it's under the current president, how much data is reported as the quote official data about things like femicide, so females being murdered, versus the number of actual women that are being murdered. And the numbers are grossly different. And she gives this example of a woman who is certainly heroic, reporting these things, putting her own life at risk, simply just documenting, these are the women that got killed and here's what happened, right? So I bring this up as just one stark example of in one country, how many, how many times I believe, and, I'm, and now I'm using this as a bigger example for myself, when someone says something like, and kind of going back to your question, and I'm not saying you meant it this way, but I'm just building off of what you asked. What are we looking at now and where is that gonna go? What I think we, I'm starting to realize when I look, I can't speak for you and I won't use the royal we, is how little I understand anyone who's quote marginalized their experience with these technologies. And right now, today, if things were just to expand based on what they are now, the more I'm reading, the more I understand. And I, I'll use percentages just kind of for scale standpoint, and I'll, I'll build on that. I think there's like 40%, if we're lucky, let's call it more like 30% of the world's population that is actually benefiting now from these amazing AI or other technologies in ways where it's really going to benefit them through health. And, and you would know from Emerge the better numbers on that. But the more I'm re reading about marginalized groups, I used to think that marginalized was, you know, like it sounds right. It's we need a new synonym because marginalized sounds like, well, it's two, two or three percent. You know, there's a margin of error. Right. The more I, more I read from these these authors who are not Western necessarily, who are not men, who are not white, who are not whatever. It's just opening my eyes. And this is not about saying, and by, I see you by your face. We might yeah, he, you, you, you up here talking to a white dude for sure right now. No, no, I'm, I'm white as well. But I think the thing is, uh, I'm not trying to in any way decry race per se. I'm just saying I'm trying to read others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Garner a broad perspective for sure. Yeah, and not just a broad perspective, but also like, uh, let me stick with the stuff that comes from these other papers so I can lean on that, which yeah, is, yeah, yeah. I don't know that I've ever felt marginalized per se except just like maybe being overweight sometimes like things like that and it's not like fundamentally not having access to things which mean me or my family suffer and there i think from a design standpoint and by the way reading ruha dr ruha benjamin's book race after technology was really helpful for me uh, she's based in princeton i haven't finished the book but she has this one example where she says a lot of times with words like data what we'll hear is something like, I'm using New Jersey as an example, and again, I'm gonna get this wrong, please read her book, it's amazing. But it's something like, there's data that says, in this region of New Jersey, where the population is 100,000 people, medical data suggests X. Now, I read that and think, me, me John, oh, well then that means 100,000 people, yada yada medical data. What she points out is to say the systemic issues, and I'm, you know, racism, sure, Systemic racism and other issues of ignorance, not stupidity, but meaning not having access to all the different realms of data. But in this example, she's speaking about race in particular. The 100,000 people from a census standpoint, that data may be, quote, factual, right? However accurate the census is, there's 100,000 people. 
But then what she points out is the medical stats refer only to the people who had access to the medical insurance or the medicine to get it in the first place. So maybe something like there's 100,000 citizens, but 20 or 30,000 only had even access to all that stuff. But then the data is reported in such a way that at least for me, it makes sense that on a regular basis, everyone hearing that data thinks, oh, 100,000 people, medical data, yada, yada. Whereas what she's saying is, and again, she says it much better, the systemic issues, if we don't address them, it's the lack of anyone designing these technologies, good intentions or whatever. They're simply only building for, say, the 30 or 40,000 people. So for me, your last question, which I'll end up here because I know you have you had some good faces. I want to hear your thoughts is outside of race, right, which is critically important. It's more about access and more about who's marginalized, when and why. And actually, I think we are all marginalized at different times. Things like ableism, right, like someone broke a foot and they can't climb up a ramp, right? That's not racial issue. But the point is, is that where the marginalized are really over 50, 60, 70 percent, depending on your definition of marginalized, then we're actually building only for a tiny percentage in very specific contexts, which actually holistically won't improve human well-being and ecological sustainability. So at least for me, really addressing those core systemic issues is utterly essential, or we go into the immersive realm, just really heightening all these these concerning issues. So yeah, we're, we're leaning into question three in a Big, big, big way. But if if we talk about where the technology is going to take us ultimately, like give me a day in the life 20 years from now as these trends continue or 30 years. Neither you nor I can prognosticate. I can I can make some I can take some stabs, though. Ain't no doubt about that. I can take some stabs. And I'm sure you can as well. You've been following these trends for, you know, as long, if not longer than I in terms of VR, AR, etc. You know, you're talking about very important moral considerations maybe being carried forward by kind of economic, you know, pushes that might be preferencing, you know, maybe I could make so much more money from this one county in the Bay Area than I can from this whole other, you know, fourth of California in terms of how I monetize whatever this tech is, that I'm kind of only building it for them. And maybe they're the only ones that are gaining the uh, the benefits in some way, shape or form. And again, you know, there's all kinds of opinions there on, you know, do we put a pistol to the temple of the business owner as being malicious and devilish? Do we count on the government to spread that stuff in some way, shape or form? Do we foster some sort of another entrepreneurial domain that can kind of serve that community? There's a lot of ways to skin the cat, but what you're getting at is that there might be natural incentives that are serving whatever's going to spin the wheels economically and then not serving moral concerns. That's that's important. I think it'll be neat to sort of see where that goes if we imagine where the future is. We get sucked into VR, sucked into AR. Uh, more and more of our life is digital. What is that life? You know, what could become digital, John? What might I be doing in virtual space now that maybe I'm doing in physical space today? Uh, you know, virtual space tomorrow that I'm doing in, in physical space today. What do you see as like that transformative vision of like what a day in the life is like? Sure, sure. Again, just to be knowing, but opening up each section with these are my thoughts. And But the thing I'll say about, because again, again, the word race for me being white and I'm trying to learn a lot and I will not use the phrase woke in the sense of, I just feel if I said that, I would just be ludicrous, but more in the sense of like, I'm really just yearning to learn. And I think here I've, I've read about, I have to get a good VR headset, but is the opportunity to explore empathy, where I think it's very easy for me to talk about race or female issues or whatever, not having had the lived experience of someone. 
Well, I mean, have, you, that's, it's unlimited, isn't it, John? Do you want to do Uyghurs or you just want to do women? I mean, which one are you going to do? I think it'd be cool to try everything. You know, it's like uh, try you know, it all. Do, should should the Uyghurs also try it all, or do you suspect that it's mostly you and I that should try it all? I'm sorry, Uyghurs. What's that term? Oh, the Uyghurs. So the Uyghurs are like the marginalized Muslim group in China in the concentration camps and whatnot. Oh, oh yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of attention. People don't really care that much about it, but uh, I happen to. But yeah, I mean, you know, who who should who should kind of run the the VR simulations of of empathy? You know, is, is it maybe like a global thing we should do, or does sort of maybe the Western world need to do it? more than others or what, what, what's your, where are you leading there? I think from my work in positive psychology, which I know you have a real background in sure. too, uh, I, I think anyone benefits from trying to understand the, how to empathize with anyone else. So I, by, by no means am I saying, Hey, the West should just whatever with the East and the East should, it, no, it's more like, um, I think the, the challenge, cause by the way, I only know what my lived experience is Same to yeah. a certain degree, which is, I'm from the West. Everything I go to is English speaking because I speak a little bit of Spanish, un poquito de español, but but it. So I'm keenly aware of things that like just make sense to me. How many different languages, you know, Mandarin or how many different dialects of Mandarin are tonal in nature, right? And that just the sound that someone makes, the nuance of their answer is going to be different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But everything I read about, you know, Taoism, Confucianism is still in English. So there, I know I'm missing nuances of the language, I assume, the language is as, as someone speaking Mandarin. Does that mean that there's something, quote, bad? No, I'm saying from design, right? And when I say design, I'm, I'm, I guess I mean like empathy by design would be a goal for me, kindness by design, where I think things like kindness for myself, uh, the last number of months, even before covid uh, as you you know, Dan, yeah, it's been yeah, really, sure. really hard for me. Yeah, yeah. And okay. and self kindness is really really challenging. Yes. <laughs> and kindness to others, I'm finding is challenging. But if I enter into a conversation for myself, uh, and you're a good example. I mean, by the way, we're friends, and I love talking with you, and I love agreeing or disagreeing with you. Yep, and all the time. That's always, one, of, one of my favorite things. Friends. Yep. Yeah. But I also think like. What's my ultimate thing with Dan? Well, he's my friend, right? And so from a kindness standpoint, I'm not interested. I'm interested in having a position and sharing my position with yep. you. But I'm more interested as a rule and trying to be more interested in saying, what's kindness mean with this interaction with this other person? And a lot of times more and more, it means A, and I'm not good at this. That's, I think you probably know. John shuts up. I just don't talk and I ask more questions. B is I really try to not be thinking what's the next thing I'm going to say that I'm used to saying. Like a lot of my narrative, I've had in my head for a while. We and all by the way, have, yeah. Which is fine. But then that means I may be missing what is the person in front of me actually giving or what do they need? And then there's a book I, I can't recommend strongly enough. Uh, ben Olson, a, a buddy of mine who was at Microsoft and now he's in a new role. Uh, he recommended Valerie Kaur, if I'm pronouncing her last name right, K-A-U-R. And the book is called See No Stranger. She is of a Sikh tradition, uh, relatives originally from India, but she was raised in California. And a lot of her experience was uh, she was the only person who was a Sikh in a very kind of Protestant Christian neighborhood. And so her experience, which again, she explains so much better, is 
after 9-11, how quickly anyone wearing a turban in her in her tradition, especially I think it's men wear turbans yep, as yep, a they often do, yeah. devotion, immediately visually became, as, as I know, living in New York when 9-11 happened, immediately it became the first visual cue where people just said horrible stuff like, oh, you're a terrorist and whatever else. And and her, she's a great TED talk too. And she also has this, it's got like 40 million views of her giving essentially a sermonette at a church. I think it's in New York. It's very powerful because I don't know what it would be like to live where just because of getting looked at, right? Like I mentioned being overweight and that's, I'm running a lot and swimming to focus on that right now. But it's not like, it sucks. And there's aspects of it that are really marginalizing and horrible and all that stuff. But I'm not, my life is not threatened per se because of it. My family is not threatened. You read her book. And by the way, I'm, I'm trying to stick with the AR VR thing here. Me too, big time. Um, it, it, to get back into that is to say, I think, let me start from positive things right now that could be exacerbated. Sorry. Um, cool, yeah, one yeah. is, I know a lot of trans teens. Uh, there's some wonderful videos of trans teens. And I love how they're filmed because they're filmed in Second Life. And what you do is you hear the voice of, say, like a 13-year-old kid somewhere in the States. But what you see is like a unicorn avatar (laughs) sitting sitting on a bench talking about how they feel that they're able to actually be themselves in an environment where they're not attacked. And I thought, you know, there's a lot of issues to that. Anonymity is a whole different discussion, right? It can be very challenging. But the positive side of, of our future, and just to give a couple more examples, I know we're coming near the end of our talk, so I want to kind of think in the future. Uh, one of my favorite books, it's sitting here, is Ready Player Go. Uh, love, the movie's fun too, but the book- Yeah, Ready fun. Player One. Yeah, yeah. I, I haven't seen one. it. I haven't seen it. Everybody's been like, oh, Dan, you've got to watch the movie, but- The book is, I mean, the movie's fun. The book is just fantastic. Really For someone okay, who grew cool. in the 80s, it's very like call callbacks. Yeah, yeah. But, but start to, you know, for your listeners, start to imagine probably what's going to happen a la Matrix or whatever is our physical bodies wake up and we get whatever sustenance we need, maybe through food, you know, like we still eat it today, or maybe it's through a tube. But in Ready Player One, they cover this, you know, there's pheromonal things that can not trick or, you know, whatever you want to call it, inform your brain. And you might just have like a saline like slush that you've have pumped into your veins, but you picture, I mean, visualize eating a hamburger and your nose is tricked or you have coffee and, and, and there's a good shot, you know, right now, a lot of not just teens, but women over 30 in the States, there's a lot of about games, you know, women over 30 are the biggest gamers. I think still, this is the number where like the number of hours that certain people already play in game is 40, 50, 60 hours a week. So, how our lives could start to be lived is that the physical reality that we're in right now becomes the, um, the exception versus the rule. And that, that means that anything we want to talk about, you know, we could start from that place, which is really, there's really no limit of what the world could start to look like. Yeah. So now I, I haven't seen the the movie or read the book, but I, I like the picture you're painting. I've talked to some degree about this idea of the husk, the husk being when, you know, uh, so perception is reality. Neither you nor I know if the Cartesian demon has created everything we've ever experienced, including you right now in front of me. If we could simply have all the right signals pumped in, whether brain computer interface, whether, you know, sense underneath my nose, whatever the case may be, if it's all just as real or more real, 
just as good or better than reality in terms of entertainment, connection, work, whatever it is, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't anyone? I mean, you know, think about how many things we do today that in 1800s you'd be like, I would never do that, right? I would never carry a device that would have other people's faces on it in my pocket. I would never do that, right? You know, that if you lived in 1820, you would say that. But of course, you know, we stretch things forward 50 years. We're going to be doing all sorts of things people said they would never do. When, when you think about this and we combine it with your ethical considerations, which I think are really gaining steam and some of these authors you've been kind enough to mention, I think, are folks that some of our listeners might want to read. I guess, you know, maybe we could say worry. We can close on some little quick tidbits on ethical or governance considerations. As these technologies carry forward, is your worry that we're going to make a lot of money and build a lot of product suites off of people that are wealthy enough to become a husk, to live, work, whatever in that space, and maybe not develop these technologies to improve the well-being and the productivity of folks in, you know, Latin America or Southeast Asia or wherever else, where right now we just can't make a lot of dollars off of serving them, generally speaking. Is this potentially your fear that marginalized groups, you know, in the term that you're using, in the, the, the context you meant it, will be left out of the well-being and productivity benefits? Or do you mean this in some other way? Yeah, I think it's a bigger thing, which is the more that I read, and, and again, marginalized, uh, I want to be very careful about that word. But I think, first of all, it's just what is, right? The 6% this is so John, not I triply, <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> word, meaning this is, but I also just think factually, it's like right now there's such mental health issues around the world, right? Outside of what's happening in the US and with COVID and the planet, right? One thing about the VR thing I just explained, which I want to touch on is however you and I perceive, you mentioned Cartesian stuff and all that, which is totally valid and et cetera. But at least in my reality and, and yours too, I think, right? There is we can ignore the planet at our peril, whether it's my dream, whether it's in VR, whether it's a fiction, whether it's whatever. I still, after we finish this call, I'm going to go and drink some water and I have access to the water. And after I do my run, if I don't drink water, I'm going to be closer to death. Like sure. I need you water. definitely are if you run as much as you've been running lately. And then indigenous cultures, the more that I read it from indigenous traditions, whether it's First Nations in the States or New Zealand, or uh, we've talked a little bit about this amazing work by a guy named Sabello out of Harvard on um, Ubuntu ethics. Yes. My experience of a Westerner, because I, and this, and this, I'm just using the Westerner framing here for myself here, is that nature as I was brought up is my friend. I want to take care of it. I see the bear, you know, crying if I don't pick up trash and all that stuff. But it's not, it was never something where it was literally necessarily kind of like a brother or sister. Definitely. At not. the end of, right, right. And, and I think there's something where the more that I read, and I can quote people so I don't misquote them, but is like a lot of the conversations like you and I are having now, and I'm not picking on you or me, is this sort of assumption that the technology of the VR, like I could sit, John could sit, that could happen. But that then I think probably the assumption is someone who may respect or, or have the environment as part of a religious or ethical or just societal structure be so ignored that that's a, that's already happening now right like this is where it's not that hard to to wonder it's not an extrapolation it's well maybe it is it's more of like what's happening next based on what's happening now the planet is in ruins we do not by we i mean the society writ large do not prioritize the planet where we're thinking about sustainability for the planet for 10 20 30 40 years a lot of indigenous traditions use the idea of six or seven or eight generations from now. 
thinking ahead that much. It's obviously the opposite of kind of a short-termism. And also things like productivity. Um, it's not that these things are evil. It's that in isolation, things like mental health issues, the reason I feel that they are so, they've grown to such an extreme level right now, especially in COVID, is that I believe that society focusing on short-termism or say productivity or exponential growth, nothing wrong with productivity, nothing wrong with growth, nothing wrong with profit. But when they become exponential, then I think that the focus is, and by the way, this is coming back to self-kindness too, right? It's not that it's sometimes, we all sometimes are focused, got to be productive, got to be, okay. But also the question is, if you're always focusing on exponential productivity, are you actually in the moment for yourself or for others? And I believe the answer is no. And then where I think, and I know we've got to end because of the, the time, I think the opportunity, I want to make it very positive. These technologies are glorious. It's not, for me, it's never a question of whether technology is glorious, but it's something where if we don't really hear from the people who are not accessing what we already have now, the internet or whatever, it's like saying, to me, it's like saying, hey, person who doesn't have access to water or human rights, what do you think the world will look like if all this other stuff over here gets advanced, but you still don't have access to water? They still don't have access to water. So that's where, to me, and I'm not trying to come off as negative. I'm saying the opportunity is so huge to take a step back and examine what are the stuff that so many of us, people who make these amazing technologies, don't know because we haven't asked. And if we don't ask and honor, then a lot of the future is simply going to be the same marginalization that exists now is only going to be that much more intent and the, and the planet will continue to suffer, et cetera. So again, but I want to frame that positively. Yeah. Yeah. So th- there's an opportunity to be aware of and reverse the trend of the, the economic motive sort of defining and refining who benefits as opposed to sort of thinking more through a lens of aggregate benefit and maybe pulling in more voices. And I think that we do have to have, as we get sucked into the virtual world, I'm sure in Ready Player One, the, uh, the physical world is pretty well neglected. You know, I think we do have to have folks thinking about the environment. You know, we also have to have th- folks thinking about a whole bunch of stuff. Somebody's got to be a plumber. You know what I mean? You and I can talk about whatever we want. Somebody's got to fix pipes. You know what I'm saying? And if they don't know a damn thing about pollution, brother, it don't matter because somebody's got to fix them pipes. So different strokes are different folks for sure. So we got to have cohorts of people focused on, on the environment, no doubt about it. Some cohorts got to be focused on at least making sure the economy stays alive. If, I mean, if it crashes, that's pretty horrendous. Some, somebody's got to focus on maybe international conflict. I'm sure there's some folks worried about, you know, how far the U.S. could crumble and what, you know, Chinese influence would be, a CCP type stuff and whatever. Somebody's got to be thinking about that. But I guess there's a lot of things that the environment's a big one. And there are some other considerations where if we go into VR world, somebody's still got to think about X. And there's a couple of those Xs. There's a few. I think there's actually a handful of them, to be honest. But uh, what you're getting at is, the momentum is we're servicing economic needs, we're servicing productivity needs, we're leaving out important voices and maybe neglecting important needs that exist in broad swaths, not one or 2%, but broad swaths of people. And if that's embraced, maybe this is an aggregate technology that can lift the, the well-being of, of vastly more people um, as these technologies take off. It sounds like maybe that's the upshot that you were leaving us with. Yeah. I mean, again, for me and a lot of the work that we do at IEEE, the ethically aligned design, the second general principle is on well-being, yep. economic indicators. But well-being indicators, as you know, the word economics is also tough, right? Yes. Because indicators are not just economic in nature. They can be positive psychology oriented, et cetera. But if with everything, when we're designing it, the question becomes, is what I'm designing to the best of my ability going to knowingly 
provably increase human well-being, where that means long-term flourishing in a holistic way. And that's on top of Maslow, they have access to food in symbiosis with environmental flourishing, right? And those two things become the actual key performance indicators first. Then to your point, plumbers having jobs and all those things, fantastic. But if we don't do those two things, then we, the mental health issues and the planet literally being on fire, et cetera, means that unless there's something like we upload our consciousness and that's the solution for everybody, there's just not really a solution that could be holistically applied. And also I think that wouldn't, that would really genuinely honor, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I guess the, the question of the future, John, and what you and I will have to live through and see how it shakes is can all countries get on the same page about that? Or will the countries that embrace that and slow down some of their technological predominance ultimately just be swallowed up by those that, that neglect some of the more moral concerns and focus on being more powerful as, as beings in nature often do? I think if we can be hopeful, maybe this general mentality that you're articulating won't just be you know a John thing or even an IEEE thing or a, a US thing, but, but maybe a more global thing. I certainly have my fingers crossed that that's the case. And with more folks like you, John, I, I think that will be the case. And I, I will give you credit as we close out. Uh, as a, a friend and a guy who's spoken to you many, 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 many a time, I think you're better than most at those two things that you criticized yourself about in terms of listening to others and really taking other perspectives seriously. And I think you've shared and showed a lot of that and also referenced a lot of great resources that hopefully some of you listeners will sink your teeth into. It's always cool for me, John, every time we talk, you've got two new papers that you're like, oh, Danny, check this one out. And so now you get to spread that to all the listeners as well. So I'm glad we got to cover the topic. I know that's all we have for time, John. Thank you so much for being able to be here on the show, brother. It's been a blast. Same here, Dan. Always learned a ton from you. Really appreciate the opportunity. So that's all for episode five of this eight-part AI Futures Saturday series. I hope you've enjoyed some of John's ideas that he brought to bear in this episode, and I hope you'll tune in for next Saturday. Next Saturday's episode here on the AI Futures series is going to focus on privacy and security at a deeper level and look at how it might impact businesses and business leaders as well as individual consumers. We speak with a renowned academic in Europe about exactly this topic, and if you've enjoyed today's episode, you'll certainly enjoy that one. Episodes seven and eight, which are going to be in our future Saturdays here, uh, a couple weeks ahead, are both looking much farther in terms of actually painting a picture of day-to-day life in a borderline transhuman future. So if you're into the big game and where things are ultimately taking us, you're going to want to make sure to stay tuned on our Saturdays moving forward. But next Saturday, it's more on privacy and security and some of the considerations we really should be able to iron out early on as this technology starts to develop. So moving forward next week, we've got another Tuesday episode here on the AI and Business podcast about use cases and trends, our normal business kind of coverage here that you're used to. So be sure to stay tuned during the week and I hope to catch you next weekend in our next Saturday episode here of the AI Future Series.